0: I want to give you a quote here from a man named Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan who's written much to enjoy and relish, including a book on the Ten Commandments. And in these uh, comments about the Ten Commandments, Watson says that God commands nothing but what is beneficial. God commands nothing but what is beneficial. And I take that to be a banner statement that you can apply over all the wisdom of God revealed in his many instructions. That whatever God has directed, any particular prohibition, any particular exhortation, we can say that because it comes from God, it is beneficial for us to hear and to heed. That God would, in other words, not direct us into folly and he would not mislead or deceive us, but rather all of his commands are for our benefit. And here's Moses, having received many instructions from the Lord that we see in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, And he's 120 years old now, on the east side of the Jordan River, in the plains of Moab. And they are poised, as an Israelite nation, to inherit the land across the Jordan, but Moses will not accompany them. Deuteronomy is the testimony from Moses before he will die. He's going to exhort this new generation of Israelites that arose during the wilderness wandering. And they are being prepared to enter the promised land and to keep the law of God in that land but many of them were not even born when Israel as a nation left Egypt. Many of them were not even born when a nation stood at the bottom of a thunderous mountain experience and laws were proclaimed. Part of the purpose of Deuteronomy is to exhort the people to remember and for many of them to um, rejoice in their corporate identity to, to say, that's my covenant. These are my people. This is my God. Even if they did not walk through walls of standing water themselves, their ancestors are their covenant bearers. And as a descendant of the nation of Israel, any of these among the new generation hearing the words of Moses must own, if you will, the responsibility and identity to be the people redeemed from Egypt, heading into a land of inheritance. Most of Deuteronomy is sermons from Moses. Every once in a while, there's some brief narration or some comments about this or that, especially at the end in chapter 34. But almost all of Deuteronomy consists of sermons from Moses, where at 120 years old, he's exhorting them and instructing them about all kinds of things. Key to understanding the flow of the book is to see the placement of these commandments here in Deuteronomy 5 and all the many instructions that follow. All the many instructions that go through about chapter 26, though there are some covenant blessings and curses in 27 and 28, and then some remaining matters to come that finish off the book, many of these instructions that you see comprising this chapter through chapter 26, they are based on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Ten Words, the words from God, these commandments, these Ten Commandments are known as the Decalogue. The word deca being a prefix referring to the number 10. The Decalogue or the Ten Commandments or the 10 words are the head for all the many instructions that follow. These These are like the fountain from which all the other instructions will flow from. The applications and the extensions, the hypothetical situations, the if this, then that. They're still based in what is upstream and that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that are to guide the people of God who have been redeemed from Egypt and these who have gathered with Moses are to be the people receiving this law. In verses 44-49 to 49 of chapter 4, there's a bit about these people before the Ten Commandments are laid out. And so we see what's likely then a section beginning in chapter 4 that goes into chapter 5 altogether. So we'll approach it that way tonight. At the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 44, this is the Torah... Or this is the law, the instruction, the text tells us. This is the Torah, the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. And we're going to read that law in chapter 5 and following. And it is uh, forefronted by the Ten Commandments themselves. This is the law that Moses sets before the people. This is not merely Moses' instruction as if it's in some way detached from divine authority. When we read these, what he calls in verse 45, the narrator calls them testimonies, statutes, rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. These are testimonies and statutes and rules beginning with the Ten Commandments but getting much broader than that and applying in many specific cases what is there. This is the law or Torah of Moses. Now these people hear Moses speaking these words and they are the people of Israel brought out of Egypt by divine rescue. These people now, it says in verse 46, are beyond the Jordan, the Jordan River that is, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, a place that in Numbers was a place of rebellion. And so even being somewhat near or in association with Beth Peor, we we are reminded of the moral rebellion in Numbers 25 that uh, King Balak of Moab had tried to facilitate through Balaam. And all of the immorality and idolatry of the Israelites. And then you see a, a, the zeal of a man named Phinehas. Holding his spear. And seeking to uh, exact vengeance in a righteous way. For the name of Yahweh. Beth Peor. Here they are not far from this place. And they're in this land in verse 46. The land that formerly belonged to some Amorite kings. In the land of Sihon the king of the Amorites. Who lived at Heshbon who Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. we've thought a number of times about that king, Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And then in verse 47, they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. When you look on a Bible map, east of the Jordan River are the former territories of the king of Hashbon and the king of Og. Why does Moses want to remind us about this? It seems that even earlier reviews about the fall of the king of Heshbon and the king of Og is to say, in effect, God is going to give you this land, and here is a foretaste of victory. The victory on the east side of the Jordan is to anticipate, to give you a down payment of sorts of the victory across the Jordan. The Israelites are people who've already experienced the victory of God's hand. And the land that is under their control is in verse 48 from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon. And then as far as Mount Sirion, which is quite north on the east side. And then in verse 49, together all with the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan. As far as the sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. Those are old references to the eastern, part of the, Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan River, going from the very north to the very south of these lands that have been conquered. If you look on a Bible map, it looks as if they're saying that on the east of the Jordan River, here's a people of God exercising dominion. These are the people who will receive the Torah of Moses, the law. So he's going to summon them. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, he summons all Israel. And he says to them the following words. Hear, O Israel. That sounds familiar when you get to chapter 6, doesn't it? Chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To open a statement saying, Hear, O Israel. Is a very solemn statement. It's similar, I think, to, to the kind of importance we would attach to Jesus' teachings when he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you. You know, it's a, hear, O Israel, seems to be followed by a kind of emphasis with divine authority that the Israelites should be ready to hear and obey, to hear with a plan to do, hear these statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. What is he pressing upon the Israelites, these people who are going to receive the law, that he's now summoning to recall key commandments? They need to be people eager to learn and to be careful to do. This is an immediate application and takeaway for our present readership in 2024. When we see the revelation of God for his people, of what it would look like to love him and to love our neighbor, the exhortation remains, hear, O Cosmosdale, what God has said. Hear his word and be ready to learn and eager to do. Ready to respond, ready to obey, for this is the Lord your God who has made himself known. Hear, O Israel, Moses says. It tells us in verses 2 and 3, the Lord our God made a covenant with us. In Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Verses 2 and 3 is Moses' way of trying to get the Israelites to join with remembrance in something they might not have been present by experience at before. He made a covenant with us at Horeb. Some people there might have thought, but I wasn't at Horeb. That's another word for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb was the place in Exodus 19 where they gathered to hear the words of God spoken to them as they gathered at the bottom of the mountain. And Moses says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us. So, yes, new people have been born in the years that followed. A generation rose up in the wilderness that weren't all present at the Exodus. And yet they are covenant bearers. They are ones with whom God has entered into a covenant because they are the Israelites. And so the Sinai covenant applies to them. It is something they should not buck against. It's not something they should reject but take seriously. Because they are an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, that Sinai covenant is something they're therefore a part of. So he made a covenant with us. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. This has perplexed some people because readers might say, Not with our fathers? You mean the the people in the earlier generation like at Sinai? I mean, didn't he make the covenant with them? The word fathers can be used in the books of Moses to refer not to the immediate generation of Israelites, but to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we opt for that understanding, which I think is correct, It is the case, isn't it, that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did not make the Sinai covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were gone when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and taken to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. So Moses is saying something unique has happened with us as Israelites that didn't even happen with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's entered into a covenant with us. This particular covenant, the Sinai covenant, who are all of us here alive today, they belong to it. Now in verses 4 and 5, which completes our part of summoning Israel to remember the law, he's recalling what we read in Exodus 19. That the Lord, at that earlier time, he's retelling some history. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. Does the Lord have a face that they saw on the mountain? That's not meant to be the way we read this. The Lord does not have a material form or shape. We learned this from the Old Testament. When it says the Lord spoke face-to-face, it's, a, it's a idiom, an idiom that is about direct communication. That's what it would mean if we were to contrast that with saying you get an email from somebody or a text from somebody or a phone call from somebody. It's different than face-to-face communication. And this language about God speaking face-to-face at the mountain is a reminder that the Israelites at the bottom of the Mount Sinai experience heard the voice of God out of the midst of the fire. Now, that wasn't the only thing that happened in Mount Sinai. We know that the Lord spoke to the Israelites, but the Lord also mediated words and laws after that through Moses to the Israelites. That's what's meant in verse five. I, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you didn't go up into the mountain. If you look at Exodus 19 and you see them gather at the mountain, In Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. After the Ten Commandments are given, they ask that no further word be spoken by God to them. Not because they wanted no revelation at all of God, they desired Moses to tell them, to mediate that word. Verses 4 and 5 in our passage tonight are basically summarizing the events of Exodus 20. That God appeared to speak out of the fire to them, and that with his presence there at the mountain, the people were afraid because of the fire. That this theophany, this experience or encounter with God, was so intimidating that after the 10th commandment, they essentially said, we can't handle any more. Those who had drawn near to the mountain at the beginning of the commandments being given... At the end, we're far removed from the mountain. It tells us in Exodus 20 that after the 10th commandment, the people were far away. It's as if in your imagination you should see big steps backward with every commandment. The whole group just moving from the mountain. And it's not because God wasn't telling them what's good. It's that the good commands they were receiving were part of an encounter at Mount Sinai that was full of glory and thunder and fire and smoke and quaking earth. So he stands between the Lord and you and declares the word of the Lord. And we see in Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23, mediated words between Moses and the Lord for Israel. Now, what we've noticed then is in this summoning to remember the law, there is a reminder of these commandments that have been given then, Followed by applications and extensions of those commandments. If you look at the layout of Exodus, which has been several years since we were in the book of Exodus together. But if you, if you go back mentally and even flipping pages, you will notice that in Exodus 20, the commandments are followed by all sorts of laws in several chapters. Not a lot of chapters. Exodus 21, 22, and 23. Three chapters. And they are all applications of the Ten Commandments. Now we're in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Here's what we're going to notice in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5 gives you the Ten Commandments, followed by a series of chapters applying those Ten Commandments. It's a similar template then, isn't it? That's mirroring what we see in Exodus. In Exodus, Ten Commandments followed by applications and reflections on those laws in their community. Deuteronomy gives you more than just a few chapters though. You get Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way through approximately chapter 26, which means Deuteronomy is a much more thorough application of the laws that you got in very important but distilled form in Exodus 20 through 23. Now, how important really are the Ten Commandments? I and mean, there's a lot of laws. In fact, if you were to try to count up laws, you're dealing with over 600 laws in the Old Testament, plenty of instructions. Why would we give such prominence to the Ten Commandments? And some believers have truly asked this question with skepticism. And they have thought maybe the Ten Commandments are just getting kind of a, an over-embellished place in the minds and speech of believers. It's helpful to keep several truths in mind about why the Ten Commandments are distinguished in the Word of God. And I want to mention six reasons very quickly why the Ten Commandments stand apart. First of all, The Israelites hear the voice of God speak these commandments. That's not true with the remainder of the laws. So that's already unique, isn't it? That's a big deal. The word of God speaks these commandments from the fiery smoking mountain. And the remainder of the laws that follow are mediated by Moses. So the Ten Commandments are unmediated revelation declared by God. So that's reason number one. Number two... The commandments are fronted in Exodus and in Deuteronomy before other laws are given. So even the very literary placement in the books is interesting. You don't get in a bunch of ceremonial and civil laws, and then Moses at some point say, "I needed to get around to this." At some point, you shall have no other gods before me. Actually, you don't find those kind of tucked away as if he's burying the lead. In fact. When Israel enters into a covenant with Yahweh, it is the Ten Commandments that seem to be the charter or their, their constitution, if you will, to what it would mean for them to be governed by moral law as a people. And this second reason that they are fronted in the book of Exodus and fronted in the book of Deuteronomy as laws standing distinct. Number three. The Ten Commandments are sometimes referred to by a special name: the Ten Words. When Exodus or Deuteronomy refers to the ten words, every careful reader of the Old Testament knows what words are meant. Those ten words spoken by Yahweh, those instructions, those commandments, those prohibitions... We're not thinking, oh, among the ten words, was there something about the ashes of the heifer? Was there a ceremonial law dealing with the kidneys or the entrails of the animal? No one's confused about what the ten words mean. The ten words are the commandments. that, That shorthand way of referring to them indicates the distinctiveness that this body of law has. Number four, the ten commandments are inscribed on tablets of stone. How unique is this? The Ten Commandments are inscribed on tablet of stone. Number five, a copy of the Ten Commandments is deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. You don't see all of Leviticus or all of Deuteronomy hiding in the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, you see the Ten Commandments with their unique station as ten words from Yahweh spoken unmediatedly to the Israelites. The copy of those commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. And number six, the Ten Commandments are quoted by and alluded to by the New Testament authors as relevant for Christian living. But the New Testament authors aren't imposing the civil and ceremonial laws upon the uh, New Covenant saints. Over and over again, however, you know what the letters of Paul, for instance, are doing? Is drawing attention to the moral laws of God. You see this in the book of Romans and in Galatians. You see this in the writing of James and his letter that bears his name. That James and Paul are examples of those who say the Ten Commandments have something to say to New Covenant saints because they reflect truths that are not limited to a Sinai covenant. Things that were true before that. Things that were true after that. Let's look at these first four commandments and how they're introduced. Tonight, I'm looking at the first four commandments because these commandments are the vertical ones. These address man's relationship with God. And then, in two weeks, when we return to Sunday night services, we'll look at the latter commandments that refer to the horizontal relationship of people with one another. So these Ten Commandments are preceded by remembering in verse 6 who God is, the one who gives them such commands. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You say, okay, that's that's like a preface here to the Ten Commandments. God reminding them who He is. Exodus does the same thing. If you go to the commandments in Exodus, Exodus 20 verse 2 starts out like this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Whenever you get the Ten Commandments, they are preceded by God saying, Here's who I am to you. I'm your Redeemer. I am your Redeemer, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm your Liberator. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I'm the Lord your God. Now, in the Old Testament ancient Near Eastern history, something worth noting is that when covenants or documents and treaties were formed among neighboring nations and groups, it was often agreements or covenants formed by a power that had conquered an inferior territory. So you have this expectation of the superior power imposing their will and essentially saying we could crush you like the bugs you are, but instead we we can enter into a treaty, a covenant, and I'm going to give you these conditions and you're going to operate along these guidelines and then we will live peaceably, harmoniously together. Standing distinct here is God's covenant with Israel. God's covenant with Israel is not a result of him conquering them. God's covenant with Israel is a result of Him redeeming them. He is their rescuer. He is the one who has mercifully delivered them by His mighty hand and outstretched arm out of the house of slavery. This redemptive template here, followed by law, is a helpful order and pattern for the new covenant life of the saints. Because we recognize that God brings imperatives and exhortations to the people of God. You read through the New Testament letters, they're full of imperatives the kind of lives we ought to live, sin to turn from, exhortations to, imbe- to obey. But exhortations and commands are rooted in an identity of who we are. In other words, the ought of the Christian life, the moral imperatives we should take seriously, they are grounded in an is in an are. Like, who are we? The people of God, the church is a redeemed people. And out of the church's identity, there is overflowing a life walking of a life that walks in obedience to the Lord. The Israelites are redeemed. They are a people of an identity now that belong to God. A people now belonging to God are given instructions for how to live before Him. And how to live among one another in community. Redemption followed by commandments. I am the Lord your God. And here in the first four commandments we read these familiar words. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. A very strange exhortation in an ancient Near Eastern world filled with other gods before other gods all the time. And sometimes in temple and sacral sites, various images and idols side by side, multiple idols right in the face of another one. And you could translate this, you shall have no other gods in front of my face or or before me. In other words, I do not stand along other competing rivals worthy of glory, worthy of worship. This God who has delivered the Israelites is the Redeemer, Yahweh. And He claims their allegiance. You see, this is what the first commandment is about. Commandment number one is about allegiance. Who do the Israelites give their ultimate allegiance to? Yahweh says, I am the Lord your God, so you shall have no other gods before me. This is an important principle that operates through Israel's laws and explains much about the danger of judgment upon the Israelite nation in the Old Testament when they bring other gods before God. When they try to worship other gods... We notice, for example, the danger of this, not because those idols are real. We've thought about this before. The principalities and powers of the evil age are real. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Which tells us that false worship is hazardous to one's spiritual state dangerous and threatening to one's good condition before God, because sacrifices to no gods at all remain nevertheless sacrifices to demonic forces. The Lord does not view idolatry as worship of the living God, well-intended though misguided. He views worship of idols to be false worship, So this exhortation is, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is reminding us that there's no other God like God. You shouldn't have gods before God, because not only is he the only God, there's nothing worship that can do what God can do. He's the Lord their God that's delivered them out of Egypt. And in chapter 4, verses 32 and following, we just need to remember that that's an example of a passage that draws questions and remembrances to the people's minds that there's no other rock like their rock. In Psalm 106:37, speaking about idol uh, worship, Psalm 106:37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. It reminds us that in Canaanite worship, some of the offerings that were given were not just other things or animals or grains, but even individuals, and that these offerings were made to demons. Not because that's what the intent was in the worshipper's mind, no doubt. But objectively, that's what false worship is. False worship is demonic. You get this in the Old Testament. And of course, the New Testament confirms this. Commandment number one is God's claim of allegiance. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Now, not crafting an image is given some uh, specifics in verses 9 and 10 this is a, a this is in the form of an imperative in verse 9 you shall not bow down but it's not a separate commandment well we, we want to carefully note that the second commandment encompasses all of verses 8 9 and 10 and the, one of the reasons we can confirm that is we go back to the book of Exodus. You can tell in Exodus 20 what the second commandment is, the second word. And that here, the second word or commandment is verses 8 to 10 in Deuteronomy 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness. Now, why would they be making a likeness of something in the sky or something on the earth or something in the water? Why are people doing that? Well, the answer is followed by that, is, uh, is in the following prohibition in verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You know, what were people doing when they were taking things in creation and forming objects? They were seeking images to worship. That's the issue. So if no other gods are to be before God, first commandment, then second commandment follows logically upon the first. You shall not bow down to images because this is not a God who is like the things of nature with some material form to imitate. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We think about in verses 9 and 10 here, the strong statement, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There have been several opportunities for us over our, our years in the uh, Pentateuch to remember that the jealousy of God is not a negative trait, We can recognize among human beings that jealousy can be a mark of something that we wouldn't find encouraging or flattering, but jealousy can have a righteous sense to it. And of course, when describing the Lord, only righteousness would be implied by any words, even words like jealousy. If you are in a covenant with your spouse and there is an issue of infidelity, you can think about the rightful jealousy the other spouse would feel because of the exclusive love and allegiance that belongs within that covenant. With that human analogy, just to make the larger point about God, he's in covenant with the Israelites because of the Sinai experience. And that means he would be rightly provoked should they abandon their faithfulness to Yahweh and go after other gods. There's a rightfulness to the jealousy of God. We would not want it otherwise. We would not want God to see people going after idols and demonic worship. And all the things that have been crafted. And for God to say, yeah, it doesn't really bother me. That would seem strange. You, you would think, well, what is it about the righteousness and glory of God. That it would not alarm him or, or provoke his judgment and wrath. For false worship and demonic activity to be so paramount. So he says, I'm the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. To visit iniquity is another word for bringing judgment. That's what the phrase means. To visit iniquity means I'm going to bring judgment on. Now he talks about the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And I think we have to be careful here to not misunderstand what he means. When people are living in idolatry, it has implications for others in their lives, generations that may be in the household. But those generations, those individuals, are held responsible for their sin. In other words, idolatry of an earlier generation is not followed by judgment on a later generation for that earlier idolatry. Deuteronomy twenty-four sixteen puts it this way. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. So why is it that multiple generations are highlighted here? Because those generations, even into the third and fourth, become generations that hate the Lord. In other words, the fourth generation isn't judged because of the rejection of the first. The fourth generation is judged because of the rejection in the fourth generation. The fourth generation continues to manifest hatred of God. Hatred is another way of using uh, a term like rejection covenant rejection, breaching of the law, a rejection of divine wisdom. These people do not want to follow Yahweh's law. They don't care about His covenant. They don't rejoice that He's their Redeemer. They don't care about inheritance in the land to live as light for the nations, for the glory of God. And so they are children who hate God. And therefore, judgment on those who reject God is a very well-established Old and New Testament principle, isn't it? But... There is an opposite. Verse 10. But showing steadfast love, which is God's covenant faithfulness, the declaration of his ongoing love and favor and care and compassion, to thousands of those, or thousands of generations, we should rightly say, of those who love me and keep my commandments. If we imagine the third and fourth generation contrasted with thousands, here's an immediate observation. These are not proportionally equal. They are radically disproportionate. And it is good news that what flows with such abundance and power for thousands of generations is the steadfast love of the Lord. Those who keep my commandments, it's the opposite of those who hate me. So those who hate me, they reject me. Those who love me, what marks those who love God? They care about what God has said. That's one of the things that marks them. Those who love God, they care about what He said, and they believe that what He said is for their benefit, that all of His commands are for their good, and they want to walk to please and honor the Lord. They want to glorify God, and they walk in His steadfast love. Now, the steadfast love of the Lord in the new covenant community is sealed on our behalf by the sacrificial work of Jesus. We do not earn steadfast love of the Lord. Rather, we walk in the steadfast love of the Lord that has been secured for us by the one who bore the curse of the law on our behalf and has sealed for us everlasting life. That's one of the, I think, foreshadowings here. A foreshadowing of everlasting life by talking about thousands versus third or fourth. Third or fourth generation versus thousands of generations. Thousands of generations. That's difficult to even comprehend. I think that's the point. It feels like that's such a big number of generations to imagine. You say, I can imagine a few, maybe three or four. I can maybe get that in my mind. You think about a great-grandparent, a grandparent, a, 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 that uh, parent's uh, child, and then maybe new ones that are born. You have four generations. It wouldn't even be beyond the pale that four generations could be in one Israelite household. In the ancient Near Eastern world, having a few generations living with you could be quite commonplace. But thousands... Thousands gets us to a point where I can't comprehend the grandeur of this number, and I think that's the point. It's to highlight the the incredible nature of the mercy of God. It sounds like everlasting compassion and mercy. It sounds like everlasting life. So, in this third commandment, as we take seriously worship of God and not making images to worship God, we take the name of the Lord seriously. The third commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, if you hold someone guiltless, that's another way of saying I'm not going to treat them according to some accusation or sin. I'm treating them as if they're not guilty. If you, that's what it would be to hold someone guiltless. To not hold someone guiltless is a longer way of saying I will treat them as rightly guilty. They will receive the penalty due their error, due their sin. So you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it is followed in verse 11 11, with a promise of judgment. That's what this is. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless. In other words, he will hold him rightly guilty, this covenant breaker. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain that we should not do? It means to not carry or place upon one's lips or life the name of the Lord in a light way in an empty way, in a way that is thoughtless. I want to mention that uh, when we were in the book of Exodus several years ago, I did a series on the Ten Commandments. We're looking at the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 in two settings, commandments with 1 to 4 and the commandments 5 to 10. But in our time in Exodus, you can go to the church archives, and you can see we did one sermon on each of the commandments. So a ten-sermon series, and when I was talking about the third commandment, I observed seven ways God's name is taken in vain. Here are the kinds of things that are meant. First, false prophecy. A false prophecy is someone who says, God has said, and it's not true. False prophecy is to take the name of the Lord on their lips, but to empty it of its authority, because here they are claiming something to be from God that isn't. Number two, false oaths. Similar to the exhortation in the ninth commandment, to not bear false witness. Well, to bear false witness is to take the name of the Lord upon one's lips, but not to be truthful. To swear a false oath then dishonors the Lord. Jesus rebuked false oaths in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. This is an Old and New Testament principle, that your words be trustworthy. And swearing a false oath is to violate the third commandment. Number three employing the name of the Lord for acts of false power. This would include using the name of God in some magical way to perform acts of sorcery or dark arts. We know that the names of deities in the ancient Near East were used with all sorts of rituals and ceremonies, trying to invoke them for different things and to manipulate them in different ways. One of the ways you take the name of the Lord your God in vain is to try to imitate the idolatrous actions that use the names of their gods. As if they're gods that can be controlled. The name of the Lord ought not to be taken in such a way. Number four, false worship. What if someone is worshiping an idol claiming they're worshiping the living God? This is to take the name of the Lord in vain. It is to ascribe worship to something that isn't God. We must worship God in the way he's revealed himself to be worshiped. Number five, false prayer. And by this I mean when people say and use the name of God in an exasperated sense. When they're not praying to God, talking to God. It's a false use of the name of God that sounds like prayer. They're using expressions and and frustration in in, uh, uh, these expressions that end up trivializing the name of God. Not esteeming and exalting the name of God. False gospels, number six. False Gospels, preaching a word to say that this is what sinners need to know or this is God's plan or whatever that is a corruption of the truth. False Gospels take the name of the Lord in vain. And then lastly, false living. We take the name of the Lord upon our lives, not just with our words, but in the way that we live. To call ourselves Christians and to live in ungodly ways is to violate the third commandment. It is to take the name of the Lord but empty it of its meaning before others as they look at our lives and see someone living in contrary ways to the gospel. This is why 1 Peter 3.16 says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. We bear the name of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Part of taking on the name of the Lord, to be baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's name, to bear the name of God upon our words and lives, is the kind of weight and is the kind of seriousness that we should say, if I'm living in ways that are contrary to the name of God I claim to worship, then I'm violating the third commandment. So those are seven brief ways in which violation of the third commandment can happen. We come then to the fourth. Fourth. And the final commandment tonight. We're told in verses 12 through 15 the same thing that the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 gives us. Here we're told, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. So we're, ta- we're thinking about that seventh day of the week. The Israelites were to have that seventh day set apart for them and to keep it holy is done by observing observe it for this purpose so the goal is to set apart the day as holy so they're to observe this seventh day as the lord your god commanded you now what does that involve some explanation in verses 13 through 15 unpack it a bit in verse 13 six days shall you labor and do all your work okay well that reminds them of exodus 20 they've heard that kind of thing before They have worked six days and and then to keep the seventh as a day of rest from their labor. You shall labor six days and do your work. But then in verse 14, the seventh day is a Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from a word meaning to cease, to stop. So to labor for six days followed by a Sabbath would mean that labor is disrupted. It is not a continuing of that same kind of labor on the Sabbath day. It's a ceasing of it. Six days look one way, a seventh day looks a different way. We're told in verse 14, on it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, according to the Old Testament book of Exodus, rich roots... The fourth commandment in Genesis, the creation of the world with the six days and the seventh day is God's declaration of creation and forming and filling in the first six and then a resting on the seventh day to rest on the seventh day. It's as if we are entering into what God has designed creation's goal to be Sabbath rest. To enter into this with God and to glimpse by keeping the Sabbath day something that we were made for, but that the fall has brought corruption to. But that in some way and in some merciful sense, even now, to keep the Sabbath holy is to enter into this rest and remembrance with God that is a gift of God. And it is not something that just one Israelite in the household is to enjoy. Notice how comprehensive verse 14 is. It includes not just a particular Israelite leader in the home, but all those in the home. And in fact, even if they're part of the immediate family or not. Maybe there's somebody who's working off debt. And particular, debt contract work was very common in this servitude state that is referenced by a male or a female servant. Involving even livestock like oxes and donkeys. What about sojourners? Maybe they're within the gates of the community and these people are just passing through. They don't necessarily belong day in and day out among the Israelites. This Sabbath is extended to all of them. It's like this grand glorious shadow in a good way, not a negative way, but that passes over all the land and looms powerfully over them for those 24 hours. A Sabbath that includes them all. Occasionally, interpreters will say, well, wait a second. When you look at the list in verse 14, you see that this uh, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, but there's not a mention of you or your wife. And it could be here that when he is speaking to you shall not do any work that he's speaking of the wife or the husband together with that you and then referring to their children next. And some have been very concerned in years past, as they have read this, that maybe uh, this overlooking is a demeaning of a woman. I don't think that we should see the absence of the word wife, you or your wife, Uh, here to mean anything negative. In fact, notice that female servant as well as daughter is mentioned, which highlights um, the reality of females in the midst and in the home. And so this is in no way an omission of wives because of a negative reason. It actually could be, as some scholars have suggested, that normal food and domestic activities within the home to continue living um, and uh, eating and enjoying that time would no doubt have been facilitated very strongly by the women in the home. And so uh, we see in verse 14, I think what should be an implication of a, a, a circle drawn all around the households and community. But here's a twist for us verse 15. And the reason this is a twist is because in Exodus 20, the Sabbath was grounded in God's design and creation. And here, he doesn't say, and after all, six days he made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested, and so therefore do that. You see that in Exodus 20, but we don't get a call back to creation here. We get a call back to the Exodus. Notice in verse 15, our last verse, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The therefore, therefore you keep it. It reminds us of the opening of verse 12, which gives us the fourth commandment itself. So verse 12 and verse 15 end, open and end, with commands to keep the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And it's grounded in, hey, remember that you were in bondage. God delivered you. So the Lord has said in verse 6, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And their redemption is another reason why they set apart their corporate life for the worship of God, the remembrance of God, the rest provided by the glimpse of the Sabbath day. In verse 15, I don't think we're reading something that nullifies Exodus 20's reference to creation. I think we're given an additional reason besides creation, where God rested on the seventh day, that now his redemption and creation provide dual grounds for their obedience. He is the God who has created all things and he redeemed them out of Egypt. I think the principle of these moral commandments brought over into the new continue even with the Sabbath observance in the people of God where we gather not on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day of the week. B.B. Warfield once remarked that the Lord Jesus took into the grave the Sabbath day and rose again and brought the Lord's day out with him. And I think one of the reasons we refer to the Lord's Day so commonly is because the Sabbath was pointing to what Christ himself would bring both in an inaugurated way as we come to Jesus for rest from our spiritual laboring and striving, but also as the one who will bring about the full new creation, the fullness and consummation of his kingdom without end. Amen. And so we have, I think, dual grounds, just as the Israelites do. Not only are the Israelites to remember God as creator, but also redeemer, we are to remember elements of creation as well. I don't think primarily Genesis 1, but we think about new creation. Something better than the old heavens and the earth is what Christ has brought to pass through his resurrection of the dead and what his first fruits of resurrection mean for our bodies in future glory. We shall be raised. New creation and new heavens and new earth shall be our abode. And God is indeed our Redeemer. Not from our bondage in Egypt, but from sin and Satan and death. From the iniquities and penalty of our sin. He has proven a greater victory and deliverance than even the great redemption in the Old Testament. In other words, just as the Israelites recalled creation and redemption we remember new creation and redemption in Christ. And that these are the things that shape the gathering for the people of God on the first day of the week to rejoice in his word and to rest in his mercy and to fellowship together on our way to a new inheritance, a new heavens and a new earth. Early in the second century, Ignatius of Antioch said, those who followed ancient customs, these Israelites, have come to a new hope, no longer celebrating the Sabbath, but observing the Lord's day, the day on which our life sprang up through Christ. You see, not only do we see the early church gathering in the book of Acts on the first day of the week, including within the letters of Paul confirmed to be such, and in Revelation 1, that the Lord's day was the day for their worship. But we see that even in the second century, the generation of the apostles, they they were understood to have set a pattern A new prescriptive activity, if you will. So in the second century, what do you see people doing? Imitating the generation of the apostles who gathered on the first day of the week for worship. We Christians are an Exodus people. We remember these first four commandments. We don't want other gods before God. We don't want to engage in false worship, which would be tantamount to demonic activity. There is the living God who has made us. And we cannot craft images to represent Him. There's nothing in heaven and earth and the sea that will be able to be crafted by our hands to be used as worship. We should not take the name of the Lord in vain on our lips or on our lives. And we should gather in the positive declaration of this fourth commandment to remember what God has done. Remembering our redemption. We are an Exodus people and a new creation people. So we rest in Christ and we remember with joy. Let's pray.